0: Okay, I have much too much. I have way too much that I would like to get to tonight. The likelihood that we'll get to it all is pretty slim, but then again, I didn't preach on Sunday, and so I think technically that adds an hour to my time tonight. You're not buying that? If you've known me for any length of time at all, you know that I am an absolute stickler for context. Uh, Meaning is determined by context, as you have heard me say over and over again, and part of what exegesis is, is understanding the meaning of the text, drawing meaning right from the text, saying what the text says, and then explaining what the text is saying, And the best way to do that is context. And so my fear is that as we've been going through this portion of Isaiah, we have had to slow down and take it section by section, piece by piece, and in so doing, I don't want you to lose the larger context. I know last week I said that there was a likelihood that I was going to repeat things that I had already told you. And the reason for that repetition is to keep the context in mind, because what we're about to read in chapter 14 does not stand by itself. As we're going to see tonight, it is part and parcel of the overall theme of the Bible, but I don't want to separate it from everything that comes before it, because the things that come before it set the stage for it, and we can only fully understand it by understanding the context of it. And so while I'm tempted to go back and read right from Isaiah oneone let's just go back to Isaiah 10 for a moment and see if we can catch up with that overarching context so that we're building speed as we hit chapter 14. In Isaiah 10, starting at verse 20, you see this repetition of this phrase at that time. In that day, Isaiah is laying out sequences of events that are going to happen at some particular time in the future that he keeps referring to as at that time or on that day. Mm. Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Okay, now there's a prophetic promise from Isaiah saying that the remnant of Israel and the house of Jacob, the house of Jacob, that's very specific nomenclature, that they are going to rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now that has not happened yet, and yet it has to. Remember, again, as we're talking about big context, that last week I tried to demonstrate to you that some of what we're reading in this prophecy actually did happen in time in history, that the Medo-Persians did conquer Babylon, exactly like what we're about to read. So parts of this prophecy have absolutely come true very genuinely, very literally, in time and history. So then I would argue that the same language drives us to conclude that this is going to happen at some point in the future that the remnant of Israel and of the house of Jacob are going to truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. That has to happen. And it is validated by the fact that parts of this prophecy have already happened. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob. That's the northern tribes. That's the house of Israel. And they will return to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, now we know exactly who we're talking about. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. A complete destruction, one that is decreed. The Lord of hosts will execute it in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion. Very specific people group, the ones who dwell in Zion. Do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod or lifts up his staff against you the way that Egypt did. So now he draws an equation. Egypt and the way that Egypt mistreated Israel, God's chosen people, Versus the way that now the Assyrians, later the Babylonians, later the Medo-Persians, later the Grecians are also going to mistreat God's people, Israel. Very specific people group. But the Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him, against Assyria, the, the king of Assyria. Oh, I skipped verse 25. For in a little while, my indignation against you, Israel... Will be spent. It'll be over. And my anger will be directed at their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift up the way that he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and this yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. And then skip down to chapter 11, verse 1. Here God has said, I'm going to restore you, Israel. I'm going to bring you back to myself. You're going to truly believe in the Lord, the God of Israel. And then chapter 11, verse 1 starts with, and then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That's clearly Christ. Christ, the progenitor of Jesse and David. He is a branch from his roots, and he's going to bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, in the spirit of counsel and strength, and the spirit of knowledge in the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, for he will not judge by what his eye sees, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with a rod out of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt of his loins. And faithfulness his belt around his waist. And the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf, and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and a nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand into the viper's den. And they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth. Will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Okay, the first part of that chapter, the root of Jesse actually did bear a branch. He actually did arrive on the planet, literally, genuinely, historically. That part actually happened. But then, as you continue and you read about leopards lying down with kids and calves with young lions and fatlings and nothing hurting or harming in all his holy mountain, that part hasn't happened. And yet it is intimately connected to the arrival of Jesus Christ and that the spirit of the Lord is going to be upon him and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he's going to be the judge who's not going to judge by what his eye sees or his ear hears. He's going to judge in righteousness. And right from that, Isaiah leaps to lions eating straw and animals getting along with each other, kids being able to put their hand into the hole of poisonous snakes and no one's going to have any fear. And no one's going to hurt or harm in all my holy mountain. Okay, so the first half of that has come true. That means the second half of that has to come true. But Isaiah sees it as all one big prophecy. It's all part and parcel of one big thing. And then, says verse 10, then will it come about in that day, there's that phrase again, that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, for the Goyim, and his resting place will be glorious. So at some point, even the Goyim are going to come to Christ, to this one, the root of Jesse, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are going to come to Christ. Okay, we would have to say that that's happening at this point in the church, in the fact that Christianity is spread around the world, but it hasn't happened to its complete fruition yet. Tonight, we're also going to see that the Gentile nations are all going to flow to Jerusalem. So, we're not even talking about the church now. We're talking about the remnant of the Gentiles that are left on the planet, how they are going to flow to Jerusalem and the king in Jerusalem. Verse 11, and then it will happen on that day, on that day when the Gentiles are flowing to that signal of Christ, to that resting place, when they're coming to Zion. On that day, the Lord will again recover a second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria and Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed from Judah from the four corners of the earth. And then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim and they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west and together they will plunder the sons of the east. Okay, so how much of that has actually occurred? None of it. At this point, Ephraim, the northern tribes, Judah... The southern tribes, they have been scattered to the four winds, and yet God promises, as sure as the promise that he would send Christ, is the promise, I'm going to gather you again, and I'm going to take away the enmity between you, because remember how this whole section began? It began with Israel making deals with the Assyrians to go attack Judah, so there was a great deal of enmity going on between the northern and southern tribes. And so there was a lot of wheeling and dealing with the Gentile nations in order to protect themselves from each other. And then God ends up saying, and I'm going to remove that enmity. There's no longer going to be againstness between those two people groups. Which takes us into verse 12. Now remember what we just read, that God is going to restore Israel and will gather them a second time With his own hand, the remnant of his people who remain. Remember that. There's this second gathering coming. This deliverance. The same way that he delivered them out of Egypt, he's going to deliver them again. In fact, in verse 15, it says, And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river. That would be the Euphrates. With his scorching wind and he will strike it into seven streams and he will make men walk over it dry shod. The same way that he took Israel out of Egypt and walked them through the Red Sea dry shod. He's going to do it again with the river in Egypt, with the sea in Egypt. And with the river Euphrates, he's going to dry it up so that men can walk over it dry shod. The same miracle again because he's doing it a second time. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who are left just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. So God makes that comparison. You can't avoid the comparison. If God actually, physically, genuinely, historically brought Israel out of Egypt, and he did, then that's how sure this is, that he's also going to do that a second time. He's going to gather those that he scattered to the north, south, east, and west, and he's going to gather them from the four winds of heaven, from the ends of the earth, says God. And I'm going to bring them back to this land the same way I did when I took them out of Egypt. Chapter 12, then you will say on that day, on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for although thou wast angry with me, thine anger has turned away and thou dost comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. This is Israel saying this, recognizing who their savior is because of this root of Jesse that sprang up and bore fruit. Behold, God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation, and therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, and in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, the nations, the goyim, the non-Jews, among the Gentiles, make them remember that his name is exalted." Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things, and let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. Again, there's no question who he's talking to or talking about. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Are you getting a feel for this language yet? Chapter 12, no, chapter 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter into the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people. The sound of uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. And the Lord of hosts is mustering an army for battle. And they are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons. And the Lord and his instruments of indignation are coming to destroy the whole land. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. Okay, so even if we're reading this kind of sequentially. We recognize that Christ is coming. He did. Christ is going to come back to establish his nation, to establish his kingdom, and to regather the nations of Israel so that they're all going to regather back to Jerusalem. And in the midst of all that, suddenly there's this day of the Lord language. And it gets very, very eschatological and dark. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor, and they will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. And thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud, and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless." I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind scarcer than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be like a hunted gazelle or like a sheep with none to gather them. They will each turn to his own people, and each one will flee to his own land, and anyone who is found will be thrust through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword, and their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, their wives will be ravished. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against Babylon, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men and they will not have any compassion on the fruit of the womb, and their eye will not pity children. Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lay there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there, and hyenas will howl in their fortified towers, and jackals will howl in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time also will come soon, and her days will not be prolonged. Chapter 14. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers, non-Jews, will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So the reason that I read all of that was so that you get that large overview, that big sweeping panorama view that God has scattered Israel has scattered Judah and has promised repeatedly that he's going to gather them from all the places that he personally scattered them and said that he was going to gather them a second time but part and parcel of that includes the day of the Lord and God pouring out his wrath for sin on the earth but then he is also promising yet again that he will have compassion on Jacob and he's going to again choose Israel why again? Because Isaiah has already referred to them as Jacob, my chosen. Israel, mine elect. And God is going to choose them yet again. And those peoples, the Gentile peoples, are going to come and attach themselves and join themselves to the house of Jacob. Okay, so has that happened? No, it hasn't. But as we read this big overview, we saw several things that have happened. And we saw several things that haven't happened. And I argue that the things that haven't happened are every bit as secure as all the stuff that we have seen happen. If Christ himself came to the planet, if that happened, if it turns out that he is the descendant of David and Jesse, and considering that when he rode into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry and people were throwing their cloaks and the palm branches in the streets, they were crying, Hosanna to the son of David. I mean, that's how obvious it was that he was that branch they grew out of the root of, of Jesse. Okay, so that part came true, absolutely true. That is the sure guarantee that all the rest of this has to happen. Or you have to explain it away. Now, I have been spending a fair bit of time listening to people explaining it away because there is something that's known as supersessionism. All it means is believing that the church has superseded Israel And that the promises that were made to Israel now belong to the church. It's also called uh, replacement theology, that Israel has been replaced by the church. Ironically, when people argue that, they don't look at all the curses for Israel, or the (laughs) scattering of Israel, or God's anger at Israel. They just pick and choose all the good stuff. They hunt and peck for the good stuff, and then say, oh, that's the church. That belongs to us. But the very fact that the people have to argue that way, the folks who do take that covenantal view, that amillennial view, the very fact that they have to argue that way proves that they know what it says. And that's really, really important because what it says is God's going to gather them a second time. What it says is God's going to choose them again. What it says is is God is going to establish them and draw them from all the places that he personally scattered them, and that then the Gentile nations are going to attach themselves to Israel and the God of Israel. That's all God glorifying himself. So just stand toe-to-toe with what it does say, and even the replacement theologians out there, who try so very hard to say that God is not going to keep his word to Israel, these things that we've just read, they then don't take the time to explain theologically how it can be that a God who doesn't change, changed his mind, changed his intention, changed his relationship with Israel, and then came to you and said, don't worry, I won't give up on you. And yet he has a history of giving up on people. And so they've created all these theological dilemmas and conundrums that they just never face. Instead, what they do is just assume that you're going to buy it when they say the church is Israel. Really, really, really important. Nobody in the New Testament ever says that. It's just not in there. There's no apostolic writing that says that. And so... I prefer to take Isaiah at face value, especially considering that while taking him at face value, he tells you that Messiah is coming, and then Messiah came. Literally, genuinely, factually, historically, he actually came. Well, then that becomes the evidence that the rest of it is also going to be literal, genuine, historic, the same way. You get the argument? Gotcha. Okay. I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but I started tonight by saying I'm going to repeat a lot of stuff tonight just so that you get the overarching context. Because the next thing we're going to see now is the taunt that God gives to Israel to make fun of the king of Babylon, remembering again that Isaiah started prophesying in 742 B.C., Babylon doesn't fall to the Medes and the Persians until 539 BC, a couple hundred years later. And here is Isaiah not only predicting the fall of Babylon, which was not the major superpower in the Middle East at the time, not only does he predict that they're going to be that, but that they are ultimately going to fall to the Medes and the Persians. And then he starts talking about the king of Babylon, talks right past him to the demon that is driving him, names that demon by name, and talks past that demon to the ultimate Antichrist to come. You want to see all that? Yes. That's where we're going now. But you get the big context? Yep. Okay. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them along. That means the Israelites will take the Gentiles along and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord and they will possess them as male servants and female servants and they will take their captors captive and they will rule over their oppressors has that happened yet no does it have to happen yes that has to happen or you gotta just say the bible's wrong never mind god lied And it will be in that day, says verse 3, when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and your turmoil and your harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Okay, so Isaiah is talking about coming Babylon as a leading superpower in the Middle East. It's a couple hundred years away. He's already talking like Babylon is going to take Judah captive. Sure enough, we know that that happens, and we know that Jeremiah tells us that they're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Isaiah predicts that the Israelites, the Judahites, are going to be released from their captivity in Babylon, and then ultimately they're going to be able to say this they're going to be able to tease the king of Babylon. When Babylon falls. So you're going to take up this taunt against the king of Babylon when your harsh service and your pain and your turmoil is all over with. You're going to say, How has the oppressor ceased? And how fury has ceased? The Lord has broken the staff. That means the power, the authority. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the people in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. And now the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. And they break forth into shouts of joy, even the cypress trees rejoice over you, in other words, over your death. And the cedars of Lebanon rejoice, saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. Wow, there's an indictment against the leaders of the earth. As we continue through this, you're going to see that ultimately God is not just talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He's not just talking about Belshazzar. They were the human agencies who ruled in Babylon. But God is going to now talk past that king and talk to the demonic influence that carried him through and gave him the remarkable power that he had. All the dead, all the kings of the nations are going to rise up off their thrones, apparently the thrones that they think they sit on in their deadness, and they will all respond to you. Even you have been made weak like we have. You've become one of us. All the kings that have ever ruled on planet Earth, all the mighty men, all the powerful people, all the people who ever exercised political authority on planet Earth in all of history died. That's what they all have in common. And then they went to Sheol. They went to the grave. They go to the place of torment. And that's what they have in common. And with each of them successively that dies and goes there, God describes it as the evil dead rising to meet them and saying, look at you. You're like one of us. We're all here in this place of punishment and torment now. Once upon a time, we were mighty, powerful, rich people. Verse 11, your pomp and the music of your harps have all been brought down to Sheol. You used to sleep on satin sheets is the idea, but now maggots are spread out as a bed beneath you and worms are your covering. Okay, that's a big change. That's a big difference from the glory that you had when you were living on earth and all your pomp and all your music and all your glory and all your wonderful clothing and your sheets and your silks and your your wonderful mattresses and your comfort. He says, now you're going to be taken down into the grave. Maggots are going to be spread out as a bed beneath you. Worms are going to be your covering. And then look very carefully at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Okay, clearly God's not talking to a human being at this point. Because he refers to him as Lucifer, which is translated star of the morning. This is the beginning of seeing this conflict between Lucifer's desire to control the world that ultimately Christ is going to rule. Christ is the only one who is rightly called the bright morning star, but Satan's proper name, Satan means the accuser, his proper name is Lucifer, star of the morning, because once upon a time, he was among the sons of God, and he was a crowning cherub. And yet he fell. He fell so far that he fell all the way to the place of maggots and worms. And even the kings of the earth mock him and make fun of him. And God tells Israel, you mock him too. Everybody taunt him. And just so you understand who it is he's really talking to, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened The nations. When you get to the book of Revelation. Revelation 20. And you read that Satan is put into an abyss. And he's kept there for a thousand years. The reason is so that he won't deceive the nations anymore. He's identified here as the one who deceives the nations. If you would Tom. Look up Luke 10. I probably should have asked you to do that a moment ago. But look up Luke 10. We're going to hear Jesus there say that he saw Satan fall from heaven. So he confirms the very thing that Isaiah is prophesying here. Read it for us. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to read on serpents and scorpions and all, of, and all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt. The same God and the same Jesus who has control over everything, including hurt and harm, says that someday there's going to be nothing to hurt or harm in all his holy mountain. Jesus, when he's on the planet, says to his disciples that he's going to send them out and nothing's going to hurt or harm them. Same God still in charge of hurt and harm. They celebrate because the demons are subject to them, right? Yes. Okay, we'll read that next part then because Jesus is then going to say, don't be happy about that. Be happy that God knows your name. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what you really ought to be rejoicing about. Not the temporal abilities you have here on planet Earth. Be happy that the God of ages knows you, chose you. Decided in favor of you. Is being gracious to you. Okay, so Isaiah says, Satan's going to fall from heaven. How have you fallen from heaven? O oh, star of the morning, son of the dawn. That happened at some time in the past prior to Isaiah. And so God talks right through the king of Babylon, speaks to Lucifer behind him and says, how is it that you have fallen like this? Jesus comes along and says, I saw that. I saw Lucifer cast out of heaven. Like lightning he fell to the earth. Well the prophecy here is. You've been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. But you. You said in your heart. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the assembly. In the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Okay, this should be an easy one for you. What's the most often repeated sin in the Bible? Pride. Pride. Who is the author of pride? Right here, Satan Lucifer himself. He was so lifted up in pride. Ezekiel tells us it's because his pipes and his taberns were built within him and that he was raised up in his beauty. He became so arrogant and proudful of how beautiful he was. So he decides in his heart, I'm going to ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That means all the host of heaven, all the other angels. I'm going to be the chief of all of them. I'm going to sit in the mount of the assembly, in the recesses of the north, and I'm going to ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I'm going to make myself like the most high God. That's what I'm planning to do. Okay, now, if any of that sounds familiar, or let's put it this way. Let's say that that same Satan, that same Lucifer, who drove the king of Babylon, he's not quite out of business yet. Because now what we're going to read is that he's also going to inspire the Antichrist to come the beast to come, is also going to be driven by this very spirit. And what's he going to want to do? Show himself that he is God. Mm -hmm. It's one of the chief characteristics he has. And he's going to set himself up in the place of the north. And he's going to set himself up in the temple, showing himself that he is God. Turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel 7. From Isaiah, go forward to Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, and then you'll land in Daniel. This is one of Daniel's visions. It's a vision of four different beasts. We don't have time to go into the details right now, but let's start at chapter 7, verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night, visions, and behold, a fourth beast dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong and it had large iron teeth and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet and it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns and while I was contemplating the horns behold another horn a little one came up among them and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And I kept looking until the thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat and his vesture was white as snow and his hair was like pure wool and his throne was ablaze with flames And his wheels were a burning fire and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which that horn was speaking. And I kept looking until that beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, which were all the successive kingdoms, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them just for an appointed time. All I want you to see there is that Daniel, who is a couple hundred years during the Babylon captivity after Isaiah, he also sees This being coming, this little horn, that's the phraseology that he keeps using, this little horn, this beast. The reason that he's called the beast is because Daniel has seen a vision of a succession of beasts, and he's seen a lion, he's seen a bear lifted up on one side, he saw a shaggy goat, he sees a leopard with wings. All of those can be traced historically. We know exactly what kingdoms they are. The Bible tells us that it's Babylon, then it's Medo-Persia, and then it's Greece, and then it's Rome, And, and we know that. But then there's this ten-horned kingdom. And it's during that kingdom, during the time of that kingdom, that Christ returns. It's during the time of that kingdom that God finally sets up the thrones and exercises judgment. It's that moment in time that Isaiah keeps referring to as in that day. In that day, someday, this is what's going to happen. Daniel sees it. Ezekiel saw it. Isaiah sees it. I don't know how we can keep ignoring it. When I say we, I don't mean we, I mean you. And I don't mean you. I mean you on the internet. And I don't mean you on the internet. I mean those other people. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Look at chapter 8 of Daniel. Now that we've established this idea of the little horn, the beast to come. Daniel 8, starting at verse 9. Out of one of them came a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. What's the beautiful land? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it grew up to the host of heaven. And it caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. We can't be talking about a human being here. We're talking about someone who raised himself up so high that he raised himself and magnified himself all the way to heaven. And then when he fell, took a third of heaven with him. And it grew up to the host of heaven. It caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. May I say, just for clarity's sake, what Daniel has told us is there was a successive, there was a succession of actual, physical, genuine, literal, earthly, historic kingdoms. And then there's this one that hasn't happened yet. But they are literally run by literal men who are demonically driven and so having established that the little horn is coming and the kingdom of the little horn is coming he then establishes that there is a satanic influence behind him that is going to give him the power here's what it says and that little horn grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Who's that? God, the Lord of hosts, the one who's in control of everything. He even magnified himself to think he was equal with the God of heaven. That's exactly what Isaiah just told us. I'm going to put my throne in the place of the north. I will be like the most high God. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, from God, and from the place of his sanctuary. That's where he was thrown down. I saw Satan thrown down out of heaven. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. In other words, they'll sacrifice to him instead of sacrificing to God. And it, the little horn, will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, an angelic being, and a holy one said to the particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, for the holy place will be properly restored. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Oh, good. This is helpful. (laughs) We're going to get the angelic interpretation. So he came near to me where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. And he said, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. In that day. When that happens. In the end. So this ten-toed kingdom, this ten-horned kingdom, this little horned demonic ruler is all part of this time of the end. And now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and he made me stand upright. And he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram that you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. There we go. We don't even have to interpret that. Now we know. We also know that the lion was Babylon. We know that from Daniel's previous writing. Verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is its first king. That's Alexander the Great. And the broken horn And the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not in his power. That absolutely happened. When Alexander the Great died, he had no son. Well, he had one young son who who then was killed so that he couldn't take the throne. And so the four generals who ruled the army of Alexander the Great Separated the land of Alexander the Great into four quadrants, and there were four rulers then. That's historic. That's accurate. That's Middle East history. It's also exactly what Daniel just said was going to happen. Mm. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, A king will arise who is insolent and skilled in intrigue and his power will be mighty but not by his own power. You got that? Mm -hmm. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and he will prosper and perform his will and he will destroy men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness He will cause deceit to succeed by his influence and he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease, while they think there's peace. He will even oppose the prince of princes and he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and the mornings which have been told are true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future, and then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Okay, so we've got this picture of an earthly king who is demonically driven, demonically inspired, who has more power than human beings ought to have, very much the same way that Alexander the Great had a kind of power that human beings just don't naturally have, which is why none of us decided to go conquer the known world. It's the same demonic power that drove the king of Babylon and drove him to take Judah captive. And then there is this one coming, this little horn who is going to root up three of the ten nations and the rest are just going to give him the authority and he is going to destroy the way nobody has ever destroyed. He's going to magnify himself in his own heart, but then he's ultimately going to be broken without human agency. In other words, God himself is going to be responsible for killing him. Turn to the New Testament real quick. We're going to get done, I promise. Matthew 24, go there. Matthew 24. You should, of course, know that Matthew 24 is Jesus answering the questions, what are going to be the signs of your coming and the end of the age. I'm going to start in verse 15. Daniel has already talked about this abomination of desolation. That's one of the nicknames that he gives to that beast character. Jesus then picks it up and says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, when you see him standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, which, by the way, you know which mountains to flee to if you read Daniel 11:41. 41. So Jesus himself not only validates that Daniel is genuine prophecy, he also casts Daniel's prophecy out into the future, because it's coming for a time at the end, and he identifies the abomination of desolation and then says, and if you want to know what that means, go read Daniel. Daniel identifies him as the little horn, as that final world ruler. Jesus then goes on to say, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get things that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to go get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there shall be great tribulation such as has never occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. And by the way, Daniel 12 verse 1 says that same thing. Time of trouble such as never was. Or ever would be again. Jesus is repeating what Daniel has already prophesied. Jesus is establishing it and then casting it out into the future. This is something that is still to come. This time of trouble on the world, such as never was or ever would be again. The day of the Lord stuff that we read out of Isaiah. This time of terror. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Is it worth pointing out that when Jesus said this to his Jewish audience, the only elect they knew of was not the church. The only elect they knew of was Israel, mine elect, Jacob, my chosen. That's who they're thinking of. So I think it's a proper reading here to say that Jesus is saying that no life would have continued if God did not cut those days short, but for the sake of Israel, he's cutting those days short because he's already promised that there's going to be a remnant that he's going to bring back to their land, that he's going to establish, that the nations are going to flow to. All of that has to happen too. So God is not going to allow that Israel is going to be utterly destroyed by this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. I'm talking really fast, but I'm trying to get done. Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, And will show great signs and wonders, so that they would mislead, if possible, even the elect, even Israel. And behold, I have told you all this in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or, Behold, he's in the inner room, don't believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be, and wherever the corpses are, that's where the vultures will be gathered. Okay, that aligns with what we've already read out of Isaiah. The sun and the moon and the stars are all going to go dark, and then the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heavens, and it's going to be so bright and so glorious against that black backdrop that the same way that lightning flashes across the sky so that everybody sees it, that's the same way that the coming of the Son of Man is going to be. There's going to be no question that he's back. So if they say to you, oh, he's hiding in the wilderness, don't buy that. Mm. If they say, oh yeah, he's, he's in that place, a private chamber, don't buy it. Jesus says, everybody's going to see me when I come back. When I'm actually back, you're going to know it. Because remember, they asked him, what's the sign of your coming? And the sign of the end. He has just explained his glorious return And great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. Exactly like Isaiah said. He's going to gather them a second time. And I'm going to gather the remnant again. And here's Jesus verifying it. And saying that he's going to send out his angels. Who are going to go to the four winds. The far corners of the earth. And gather the elect. Israel, just like Isaiah predicted. So you've got Isaiah predicting it, and you've got Jesus verifying it. So if you're going to allegorize that away, or attempt to say that that's somehow the church, then you're not playing fair with what the Bible actually says. And again, the people who do that know what it says, because they work very hard to explain away what it says. That means they know it says it. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This should sound this should, should, should. <laughs> this should sound familiar to you. We've been talking about this on Sunday mornings as we were talking about the catching away of the church. But now I want to add a little more detail to it. Starting right at verse 1, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now we know what the day of the Lord is. Now we understand it is that time of terror and trouble that Isaiah has already described, that Joel describes, that Ezekiel describes. So if anybody says to you, the day of the Lord is here, he's saying, don't don't believe that because first, certain things have to happen. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Apostasia, go back to a couple Sundays ago, I'll explain all that to you there. That comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God why? because he's a man who is driven by a demonic spirit that same demonic spirit who was driving the king of Babylon who was driving Alexander the Great who is driving the kings of the earth who become so full of pride and arrogance that some of them even say I'm going to be more powerful than God, I'm going to be worshipped like God and hear this one that is coming, this one who Paul himself casts out into the future and says is coming is going to seat himself in the temple of God, by the way that means there has to be a temple of God, he's going to display himself in the temple of God showing himself that he is God and then Paul says, do you not remember that while I was with you I was telling you these things, apparently Paul talked eschatology a lot even though you don't hear it much in churches do you not remember while I was still with you I was telling you these things and you know what restrains him now So that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one. That's Daniel's little horn. That's Daniel's beast. That lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. When Christ returns, he's going to kill the Antichrist, be done with him entirely. And remember that we already heard from Daniel that that little horn was going to be destroyed, but not with human hands, not by human agency. It's the return of Christ that is going to destroy him. Now, whether you're looking at Isaiah, whether you're looking at Ezekiel, whether you're looking at Daniel, Whether you're looking at Jesus or what he says, whether you're looking at Paul, they're all telling the same story. It's all exactly the same. They are prophesying that there is yet this world ruler coming who, because he is driven by Lucifer himself, he's going to want to set himself up in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Because from the beginning, that has always been his desire to accumulate worship to himself. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth So as to be saved, where would they have received it? God would have given them the love of the truth so that they would be saved. There's election sovereignly right in that verse. And because they didn't receive it, instead they're going to be deceived. Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe the lie, so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged, condemned. All they who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Why is this final little horn, beast, antichrist character coming? Because that is God's ultimate plan for his people, for judgment, for deliverance, for his election. It's all part and parcel of the same great big absolutely sovereign plan. I'm not done yet. Turn to Revelation 13. I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. He stood on the sand of the seashore, Michael the angel. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns. What did Daniel say? Ten horns. horns. Now we know who that is, this beast with ten horns. Now, Now that's identified. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, ten kingdoms. And on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Here come the beast of Daniel again. Like a leopard, his feet were like a bear, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion. In other words, he's going to speak like Babylon. He's going to stand in the area of the Medo-Persian Empire, and he's going to be influenced by the demonic spirit that drove Alexander the Great. He's like a leopard. That's what he's like like Alexander the Great, but his feet are standing where the bear stood and his mouth is speaking the lies of Babylon. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Is there any question now about who is driving this final world ruler? He's being driven by Satan himself, by Lucifer, exactly as Isaiah, speaking to the king of Babylon, speaks right through him to Lucifer. Because Lucifer is the one who has driven the kings of the earth. So I saw one of his heads as it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon. Notice it doesn't say they worship the beast. When they're worshipping the beast, they are worshipping Satan himself. They worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. That's three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God. To blaspheme God's name in God's tabernacle. That is... He blaspheme God among those who dwell in heaven. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe of people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world. Okay, what did we just read from Paul? All the people who are still on the earth are under a strong delusion because they did not receive the... The love of the truth. And so they're going to believe the lie. And they're going to be condemned. But then there's this other group. Those who have been chosen. Those who have been elected. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. But everybody on the planet. When the Antichrist is on the planet. All of them are not in the Lamb's book of life. All they who dwell on the earth. Will worship him. The beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Back to Isaiah 14. Verse 15. Despite raising yourself up, saying you're going to ascend into heaven despite raising your throne above the stars of God, despite wanting to sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, despite saying that you're going to ascend to the heights of the clouds and make yourself like the most high, verse 15, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to the grave, to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So how much good did all that arrogance do him? And yet he's going to do it. Yet it's going to happen. Despite the fact that the Bible, the very word of God, already explains what he's going to do and the motivation for doing it and the demonic power behind doing it. Nevertheless, he's going to do it. He's going to rise up and he's going to think to overthrow all the worship of God so that he himself can be worshipped. And yet... He's thrown down into the grave to the recesses of the pit and those who see you will gaze at you and they will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced through with a sword. In other words, you're going to be like a soldier on a battlefield who's been driven through with a sword, and you're just going to lay there in the mud. You will go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial. Because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter. Because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise. They must not take possession of the earth. They must not fill the face of the earth with their cities. And I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will cut off from Babylon name and survivors, offspring and posterity, says the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the hedgehog and swamps of water. And I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. There, I got it all in in one night. Do you get the panorama? All I'm trying to show you is that huge, sweeping panorama of the Bible. And you cannot extricate the Old Testament prophecies from the New Testament understanding because Paul and Jesus and John in Revelation all end up saying the same thing that the Old Testament prophets said. So there's this tremendous continuity, which I hope you saw tonight. And for that reason, I am absolutely convinced because the Bible absolutely says it that the things that have not happened yet are absolutely going to happen. And that includes our Lord is coming to get us. Got it? it. I would ask if there are any questions, but I'm not going to. (laughs) I don't think I can handle that now. (laughs) Say goodbye to the internet congregation.